Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The live show. And welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. We're back again, which is brilliant. I love the Leicester Square Theatre. It's been like, how many times now have I been here? Maybe five or six? Anyway, it feels like, it's wonderful. I'm Ros Taylor. Uh, Thanks for joining us at such a crucial moment in British politics. (laughs) Sugar is 47% more expensive than it was last time last year. Junior doctors are striking again next month. And Labour is on course for a majority. (laughs) But there is only one question on the lips of a fevered Conservative Party. When will the woke blob cease their witch hunt against (laughs) Boris? And he's in Las Vegas today. Filling his, filling his boots for an undisclosed sum, uh, while Loyal Carrie prepares to produce the eighth heir. Or is it the ninth? That one just never gets old, does it? <laughs> Unlike the man himself. And um, tonight, as we come, we hope to the end of the worst government of our lifetimes. We're going to look at the seven deadly sins of these terrible years. And I bet you can't guess which Prime Minister wins out on sloth, greed, and, of course, lust. (laughs) Then in part two, who will be the Conservative Corbyn? Which of the candidates in the Tories' endless leadership contest will get to steer the party through what we hope will be some very long wilderness years? (laughs) And what will they do to the Conservatives? And finally, we're going to think of, uh, try and think of some reasons to be cheerful in the year to come. But first, let's meet the panel. Arthur Snell is a former diplomat who's seen service in Yemen, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's the presenter of our sibling podcast, Doomsday Watch, which is now recording, I think, its fourth series. Uh, that's right. Yes, we somehow made it to the fourth one. <laughs> and still... <laughs> Still more ways to the end of the world. Arthur, the Tory MP and Nat Connor, can we say Nat Connor? I think we can. Yeah. (laughs) Miriam Cates talked about foreign students today coming over here to consume knowledge. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) How dare they? I bet you started that way, didn't you, Alex? I did. Yeah, yeah. Give some of it back. I was on that boat. <laughs> you came on that inflatable reading. If you're coming over here, should you try not to consume knowledge? Well, it, it, I'm very glad because Miriam Cates has drawn attention to a very serious problem in this country. It's not widely known that under the Bank of England, there's a vault in which the country's knowledge is stored. <laughs> Um, this is a finite resource, and as recent events have shown, it's actually becoming quite depleted. There's not, there's not much left. And these foreign students come here, they take the knowledge, and they often go back to their own countries with that knowledge. So it's good that she's... I mean, this is what these people are, are helping with, in a way, is that these natcons, is, is drawing attention to things that we didn't realise were, were problems. <laughs> That is so true. And, you know, when I was at the London School of Economics, I saw so much. You wouldn't believe how much of this knowledge being just taken away. And I couldn't, couldn't do a thing about it. It's shocking. <laughs> Making her live debut with us, Marie Leconte is a columnist for The New Statesman and is the author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. <laughs> Marie, we found out this week that Suella Braverman didn't want to go on a speed awareness course. And quite a lot of people will sympathise with her. I mean, I can't imagine it's very good. I haven't been on one myself. I'm, I'm, I failed my driving, les- uh, driving test 20 years ago and have not tried again. Rishi Sunak, it turns out, is one of those people who sympathises with her plight. But you're not, are you? Um, so, so I am a car extremist, which is, so I think I'm actually quite milquetoast in lots of my political opinions. However, I do think that basically, if you would like to learn how to drive and buy a car, you should let generally, this is my sincerely held opinion, by the way, uh, I'm not joking in the slightest, you should go in front of a panel and explain why you deserve to drive a car. 
And then if they say no, that's it, literally. Um, and yeah, and that should probably happen every five years as well. So it's not, it's not, you know, for all your life, to be clear, just every five years, there's a panel you go to. I mean, I'm full Soviet on cars. Um, yeah, and, and also, yeah, and if you speed, I think, yeah, even let's say like two miles per hour um, above the limit, you should lose. So isn't it gain half your... I'm very confused. I tweeted something about points and then one million drivers, uh, all of them men somehow, um, <laughs> tweeted back at me to tell me I was wrong. And I was like, I don't care because, again, I will never drive. Anyway, I think that, you know, if, if you drive too fast twice, twice in your life, never again. Get a bike. Live your life. Um, but, yeah, so it's a proper, again, this is why I will never be an MP. And I am very <laughs> relaxed about that. What is a speed awareness course that lasts a day? This is fast. This is slower. <laughs> you play Sonic, the video game, in my head, and then it's that like, not that. To be clear, it's not that. Slower yeah. than that. I've been on a speed awareness course. So I... Boo! Oh. <laughs> Un- unlike the Home Secretary, it wasn't one-to-one. There were other people. Is it not just like Grand Theft Auto? And it shows you, you know, like, if you go this fast, this guy will die. <laughs> no, that, that's the bit that gets you onto the speed awareness course. <laughs> Still, you know, shock tactics, I feel. Appropriate. And completing the panel, he acts, he cooks, he sings, he writes, he puts his opera collection in alphabetical order. It's the human Swiss army knife that is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Thanks. Thanks for that. So he's done, he's done service in Yemen and Afghanistan, and I put my collection in alphabetical order. <laughs> that, that's my fucking achievement, is it? Great. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for that. But on the other hand, he could fold you up and put you in his pocket and take it to Yemen and Afghanistan. (laughs) I understand you're pretty disappointed by the election results in Greece. It was a blow, wasn't it? Because it wasn't great from Turkey and then Greece, pretty bad too. I'm sorry to bring the party down, but it was awful. Um, um, Journalists had dubbed this the mute election because basically everyone was refusing to answer polls. It became a thing in Greece to just not talk to... A friend of mine that works for a polling company was telling me that she got answers from about four out of every hundred people that that she would call. And so no one knew what was going to happen, but the polls, such as they were, they were predicting basically the the right-wing and the left-wing party pretty much neck and neck at about 29 to 31%. And come election day, they had basically underestimated the right-wing share by about 10% and overestimated the left-wing share by about 10%. So it ended up being 20-40 instead of neck and neck. And it was just crushing to see that there are so many idiots (laughs) in my country. Sympathies. Yeah. Lessons there, though. We'll talk about them in the second half. Indeed. So let's start with the good news. Uh, The Conservatives appear to be in an inescapable downward spiral, with Labour enjoying a lead of between 15 and 23 points since the new year. So why would we jinx it by looking back on the low points of the past 13 years? (laughs) We're going to do it through the seven deadly sins. Who committed them? Who paid the price and what can we learn from it? Let's start with greed. And the big one is the PPE scandal. Um, The Department for Health and Social Care lost three quarters of the £12 billion it spent on PPE in the first year of the pandemic by playing inflated prices. And that included £4 billion for kit that couldn't be used at all. Alex, who actually benefited from this fiasco, where did the nine billion pounds go? What you want me to itemize it? I mean, um, there, a, there are a lot of resources out there, and a lot of people have done very good work. They're easy to find. There are some very famous examples. They're easy to find um, because it's fair to say that there were a lot of piglets at that trough. Um, I can say with some confidence that we don't yet know all of it from today's news of the COVID inquiry. I mean, the fucking spectacle of the COVID inquiry that the government set up, having to sue the government, having to threaten legal action to get the information that it needs from them. I would imagine there's still a lot more 
to be revealed. Otherwise, they wouldn't be holding on to it so tightly. I can give you some headline numbers, and these are from the British Medical Journal. Ten, the factor by which a company was more likely to get a contract if it was in the VAP lane. One in five, the proportion of emergency COVID-19 contracts handed out that had red flags for corruption or slavery. 2.2 billion, the known value of contracts given to Conservative Party donors and affiliates. 3 billion, the total value of contracts whose award is being investigated or the subject of legal action. And I can give you one more number. 12 billion, that figure you mentioned at the start, is exactly the amount by which national insurance was raised right after to plug the hole in the NHS budget. Coincidental, I'm sure. So um, I don't know where it went, but I know who will fucking pay for it. <laughs> That's all of us. We know that some of it went to Michelle Moan or Baroness Michelle Moan, as she still is, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of companies actually that have absorbed funds like that, they've set up in various offshore territories so that you can't really touch them. Um, the government was basically in a panic and a lot of their mates took advantage. That's what happened. That's the basic explanation of it. Um, and, and I want to quote here something from the National Audit Office report on this because it gets forgotten quite a lot. The work of the pandemic preparedness program was paused or postponed to free up resources for EU exit work. And the Cabinet Office's Civil Contingency Secretariat, responsible for coordinating emergency responses, had 56 of its 94 staff fully employed preparing for a no-deal Brexit. So if you're looking at why we were caught with our pants down, you could do a lot worse than that paragraph. Marie, greed is not Boris Johnson's only sin. Clearly, uh, we will be returning to Boris Johnson, possibly too much in this show, but, you know, why not? But it is one of the main ones. There's the golden wallpaper. There's the £150,000 bulletproof playhouse at Chequers, which was sadly never actually built, even though, even though someone was prepared to pay for it. The millions from speeches, which he's already earned, and still getting us to pay for his partygate defence. Why does this man like to surround himself with bling? Well, so I think the thing you have to understand about Boris Johnson and the kind of Johnson family in general is that they do, so they live in a world that is entirely alien to us. Um, and it's, I, a few years ago, I had to do a, a big piece on the entire Johnson family. Um, and I read everything on the internet to see about all of them. And I remember there was a point on day three, whenever I closed my eyes, I could see Stanley Johnson at the back of my eyelids. Uh, just terrible. I do not get paid enough. Um, but but, but you know, what I found, which was really interesting, is the sense that actually, um, again, they, they generally feel really hard done by. Like, they feel like you know, they're not as posh as the people around them in their circles. You know, they're not as rich as people in their circles. And if you look at so Rachel Johnson got married to this guy whose name escapes me now but his joke when they got married was saying oh we know that's good because you, you'll insert some thick peasant stock into our bloodline um so again you know in the context of those circles like, you know the johnsons are actually not they're not that rich they're not that posh and there is that sense i think from stanley especially he basically brought up all these kids and said you know we kind of need to retake because they used to be i think quite an illustrious family but like you know some way back in turkey or whatever i was saying you know we need to establish ourselves that the Johnson clan needs to come back and needs to be part of all those circles and have all that money. So I think it, it is generally just that, is the fact that, that they spent all this time, you know, their kind of formative years in places where everyone was richer than them and had bigger gaps than them and had better titles than them. And that broke something quite fundamental in all their brains. And that's why there's that kind of endless you know, need to, to again, to, to get money and status, which is actually quite sad. I mean, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't feel tremendously for them. My violin is personally very small. Um, but, but it's still, it, it, is, it is slightly cloying of that thing, you know, and that they'll never quite reach that status that they clearly all want desperately just so much all the time. They will always be nouveau riche, whereas, in fact, they want to be landed rich. I know, but that, that's exactly it, I think. I can't believe that I'm, you know, the French woman on this panel. And I'm like, actually, it's all about class roles. I think you'll find it's... Uh... Everything is always about class yeah. in Britain. Have you not realised this yet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Arthur Johnson has always cultivated the friendship of rich people, as we as we heard from Marie. And I mean, clearly, at Eton, from Eton onwards, he's done that. And it's usually men. Is this a common strategy for a would-be ambitious leader? Is this the way to do it? I think it is. But I think um, the problem that Johnson has, which is um, unfortunate for him, is that in the olden days, you could do this. And then at a certain point, if the person got a bit of bum tails, you'd have them executed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that usually sort of solved these. You wouldn't have any of these people, these sort of ghastly people coming out and talking about gold wallpaper if you'd beheaded them a few weeks earlier. Um, I was thinking, just in, in honour of, of having a French person on the panel, of Baron Semblancet, who lent huge sums of money to Francis I and then sadly uh, was executed um, and 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 um, and it's a sort of pattern and i think johnson's greatest regret was that he couldn't sort of finish the job in that way was this a threat by the way <laughs> it just seemed relevant somehow you know. i mean it, it's true <laughs> it's true that you can't follow the money once the money's dead you know i mean you know it's it's uh, <laughs> foolproof <laughs> Right, next, next, um, <laughs> deadly sin, pride. I mean, you could argue that pride is behind Brexit, the, the original sin maybe of this government, or at least one of the early ones. Arthur, how did pride play into Brexit? Well, I think, um, and, and the, the, at risk of going serious for a second, uh, I think it really killed a whole generation of British people, particularly politicians, but also some officials, to be members of, of an organisation on which they had equal status with, I don't know, Belgium or Denmark or, you know, pick, pick another European country. And, and that was the thing about the EU, that there wasn't a security council. There wasn't like a, a top tier. Yes, of course, there were bigger countries. Some countries had more influence. Uh, but but as, as members, you had equal status. And, and you would see that... It, the sort of the, the sense of thwarted imperial ambition would kind of drip off um, those those uh, leaders at that time, and, and re- recall the reluctance with which any British politician would ever go to Brussels. Whereas if you offered them, you know, a gig in some sort of church hall in Washington D.C., they'd show up. Um, and, and I think that that was always there. So some some weird inability to grapple with being uh, in Europe as an equal member. And is it pride that keeps the Conservatives wedded to this? I mean, clearly, they, it's, it's just so hard to admit, isn't it? It was such an enormous career-defining thing. How can you possibly let go of it? Yeah, I, and I guess I, I found myself thinking about this in terms of perhaps getting ahead of oneself, of thinking about after the election and the Tories in opposition, because there's that thing where when you've, when you've screwed up massively you sort of think, well, what, what, what were our big successes? And, of course, that's why the Tories always go on about Margaret Thatcher, because they think, oh, well, you know, Thatcher was great. Maybe we can do a Thatcher thing. Um, and often it doesn't quite work out, because it turned out that Liz Truss, you know, had only the outfit and, and none, of, none, of the other, none of the other attributes. Um, and, and I just I wonder whether, for years to come, they'll be thinking about Brexit, because, of course, doing the campaign, and up, up to the point when you've won the referendum, was just brilliant. That was, you know, your finest hour. Um, and all the bits afterwards were awful. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they'll spend, let's hope they waste decades looking for their next Brexit, their next big campaign. I mean, so, you know, you hear people saying, oh, well, it's climate change. But I mean, you know, happily in this country, people are, are not buying into that. So, so I, I, in a weird way, it, that, that kind of pride will, will probably drag them into some wasted years. Marie, the last time there was a majority who thought Britain leaving the EU was a good idea was actually May 2020. And it was a 1% lead, just 1%. And now only 31% of people think that leaving was the right thing to do. Plenty of people have changed their minds, clearly. But I keep hearing from all kinds of well, journalists, especially, as we said, but that it's important not to tell them that they screwed up, however tempting that is. Do you agree? Please don't boo me. I would really, really appreciate it if you did not boo me. Thank you in advance. Um, I, uh, I sort of do what... I- boo! <laughs> I'm so sorry. I you know, can't help myself. If, no, okay, so... 
I am going to the high grounds here and say I told them not to boo. I did not specify that the panel, the panel, Alex, should not boo me as well. I am on board. It's I am it is, yeah, he's great. We get along so well. I love him. It's Marie's first live show, Alex. Come on. Yeah, no, and I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> well, no, no, what is it? Serious point, don't boo me. Um, and then, but is that, is that, I, I sort of think that there's a point there in that I, like it is, and, and basically I'm going to start this by saying that it is obviously immensely frustrating and maddening because people would promise the moon on a stick and then a few years ago, you know, a few years later we're like, oh, hang on about that moon on a stick. Um, and and, and that, is, that is maddening. But I think the problem is that you, you're not going to be able to do anything right now. You can't, I think my sincere belief is that you cannot do anything while you have like, A, the parliament that we have. So you need, I think, a whole like, generational change in terms of the MPs who are, you know, who, who are, uh, on the green benches, but because so many of them either, you know, still feel really passionately one way or the other about Brexit, or but just in any case feel incredibly wounded by the years of constant civil war in Parliament and the votes and the acrimony and everything. So you can't do it with them. I think you can't do it with... Um, trying to find a kind word i think i'm just going to say fine like you know the mental people on fleet street i think a lot of them need to go before anything can happen because again because they went to war and they were just, you know enemies of people and everything and they're not going to give up now you know because it's their thing it's their battle um but also i think you know in, in terms of the wider country it's not like people are knackered and if you look at a lot of the polling people just do not want to care about politics for the time being. Like they just, and, and I get that, you know, if it, if it weren't my job, I would also not want to care about politics anymore. Um, but, but, you know, so I think that they no longer want a national politics that they feel they have to pay attention to. So I think, you know, selling anything that's massive right now would not fly. And also I think the EU does not want that. So I remember going to uh, Brussels in, I think it was literally like late 2017. And kind of just talking to people, so I was writing a thing about Brexit and actually, and it was what was fascinating is that I mentioned they were like, oh, God, just like Brexit. Are you still talking about Brexit? Like, Jesus Christ, we are so done with it. Which obviously, in hindsight, incredibly funny that in November 2017, they were like, ah, ah. So, yeah, so again, so even Brussels, I think, does not want to hear a single word about Britain right now. So, yeah, so if Brussels doesn't want this right now, Parliament can't handle it. The press will go mental and people just want to have a break. I just think the timing's wrong, which, which doesn't mean it will never happen. But I think basically that, that that's a very long way to say, yes, I agree. <laughs> and you did not boo. Thank you so much. Alex, Keir Starmer agrees with that too. I mean, he's studiously avoiding saying anything that looks like reversing Brexit. He's going to make it work. And we might, might not like that much, but it does seem to be paying off as a strategy for him. What do you think he will do, though, if Labour win the election? Well, look, the, the fact that it's, it's been paying off doesn't mean it will continue to pay off, because like you said, in the latest polling, the people who think Brexit is more of a success than a failure, 9%. I mean, 9%. That means, at best count, even four out of five people who voted for Brexit think it's terrible you think it's a mess for whatever reason um so the time may come when he he has to shift um having said that i just do not understand people's obsession with starmer like saying the actual words they want him to say i will rejoin the the single market even though that will actually make it more difficult for both the eu and for starmer to get in a position where they can actually do it in practice, people still want the gratification of having him say those words, even though it will hurt him electorally. I mean, he's given himself an enormous amount of room, right? Think back two years, let's say. He was saying, yeah, we need a new veterinary agreement. And, and then it was a new security cooperation, and then data sharing, and then he was saying that we need frictionless trade. And now he's saying he will renegotiate the actual trade deal. And it's getting zero traction in all the places that you would think would become utterly corybantic about it. So, you know, joining the single market is a collection of 50 things. If you can deliver 25 of them in his first year, but instead of call it joining the single market, call it the Elizabeth the Second 
Um, you know, uh, Britain is the best accord. <laughs> you know, just let him do that for fuck's sake. Like, grow up. You, ca- you cannot possibly doubt where his mind and heart is on this. He's, he literally spent two years trying to reverse it. At great political cost, he was trying to get a second referendum. So we know where his heart lies. Stop trying to make him say the actual words. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. Make Britain dull again. That's, that's my... I do think if you called it the Great British Market, I think you can totally sell the single market back to the British people. And, uh, you know, like one of those dodgy market traders who <laughs> flogs something and somebody brings it back and says, this is rubbish, I'm not having this. And so he just tarts it up slightly and then puts it out in the stall again. I, I, can, I can work, yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about you, by the way, so yeah, don't giggle. On to Roth, because um, we have an embarrassment of riches for Roth. We have, for example, Pretty Patel, uh, who was found to have bullied her sing- uh, civil servants, and the government paid out £370,000 to settle a bullying claim. Yet it was Boris Johnson's advisor on the ministerial code who resigned instead of Patel. And, of course, there's Dominic Raab, who sadly won't be returning to Parliament after Aww. the next election. I'm sorry, guys. I know we were all looking forward. We were all looking forward to the election night, let's face it. But, you know, we were, we were looking forward to seeing it defeated. And he, he quit as Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary after a report upheld two claims of bullying against him, including hurling tomatoes across the room. Although, admittedly, these apparently were only pret tomatoes. So, yeah, not, not proper tomatoes. And I can't, I can't imagine Dominic Raab getting sort of hot and heavy in a sort of Spanish festival tomatina-like situation <laughs> where he really goes to town on tomatoes. And then, of course, there's Gavin Williamson, who told one person to slit their throat on one occasion and another one to jump out the window. And, of course, he had a tarantula called Kronos. And I sometimes wonder what happened to Kronos because he must be reaching the end of his natural tarantula lifespan now. And, you know, has, has Gavin cruelly cast him aside or is he still, you know, living in a small tank in, in, in anyway, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, there's Dominic Cummings, who was renowned for his rages. He had Sadhu Javid's spad, Sonia Khan, frog-marched out of number 10. Marie, is this an especially bullying sort of government or have politicians always been angry we just don't hear about it as much now um yes and no because i think that like i i can't talk for like the, the entire history of british politics but certainly if you talk to people especially if you talk to kind of like people who are special advisors or you know parliamentary assistants in the blair years in the gordon brown years there was a lot of bullying back then as well you know and they will say because actually a lot of the labor mps i will not be naming any names i do not want to be sued but you know a lot of the labor mps who are still in parliament now and you'll have people who are around in those years and go you know they were horrible i got screamed at and especially you know i think at the time it was like th- th- there was more as well i think of a kind of like gender element which has got slightly better i would say in parliament overall now but at the time it was properly just like yeah if you're a woman uh, working in parliament in the late 90s you know people would ignore you like if you're like you know a gay man etc um but no so i will say that from at least the, the the contacts i can i can speak for i think who were there from the kind of maybe mid 90s i it's always been a problem so, so in a weird way so i wonder if um because isn't it that thing of a country seems appears to be its most corrupt when it's finally starting to sort out corruption because that's finally when it's taking a look at it and is being reported more and more. So I do wonder if actually weirdly with Parliament it's not a similar thing of actually now the press cares about this. I think not that long ago the press did not care about Me Too in Parliament, did not care about bullying, etc. So I, I wonder if it looks really bad now but in a slightly twisted way because things are finally getting better. Um, w- would be my my sort of optimistic-ish guess. Yeah, it's that Gramsci yeah, thing. I can't believe, sorry, I can't believe I managed to spin optimistic guess when my thing was like, it's always been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Alex, these people's defenders in the media 
like to claim that younger people just can't handle a bit of robustness in the workplace and, you know, the whole snowflake thing. But why do they keep pitting one generation against another? Why is this one of the defining things about the last year or two where we keep being encouraged to hate on other generations that we're not a part of? Um, because they're talking to the voters who um, are, how do I put this delicately, broadly speaking, between old and dead. Um, <laughs> and so older people always think younger people are much softer than they were. It's, it's, it's a universal feature. It's always much easier to sell a lie that people kind of believe already. I mean, my dad used to tell us, what you need is another world war to understand the value of things. And it's like, isn't there like a, a step thing towards a world war? Isn't there some sort of teaching implement that comes before millions of people dying? Um, but, but yeah, so, so, I mean, that's the, the short arms. And also, they are a, a generation that have been relentlessly bullied, you know, they, they've been caned in their schools and smacked by their parents, and, and it, it has been a generation that has been bullied on the whole. And it's a really bizarre but particular feature of victims of bullying that many of them come to think, if I had to eat shit, then so should you. Um, and so they're pushing out an open door. We're going to move on now to Envy, the rats in a sack factor. Arthur, was it ultimately Boris Johnson envy of David Cameron that was the thing that drove him to do so many of the bad things he did? Um, well, it, it does, it pick up on, on, on what Marie was talking about earlier, that the Johnsons aren't quite the sort of posh toffs that they want you to think they are. And, and um, I can recommend it to those who might not have seen it. There's a great book by Simon Cooper called Chums about that generation which which sort of came out of oxford and gave us brexit thanks guys um and um yeah and and what you see from that is 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 cameron is is sort of excessively posh whereas johnson is just a bit posh um and cameron didn't even need to do student politics because um when when he left oxford Someone from, this is literally the, true, someone from Buckingham Palace rang up the Conservative Research Department and said, you ought to employ this chap, Cameron, he's splendid. Um, whereas all these other sort of middle-class types had to go to the Oxford Union and get elected and give speeches, but, you know, Cameron just sort of glided in. So I can imagine if you're Boris Johnson, not to feel sorry for him, but that's probably a bit annoying, isn't it? Um, but, but I think that's to ascribe too much influence to Cameron because Boris Johnson seems to be a a fundamentally useless person and a, a sort of an, an excuse for humanity. Um, and and, and uh, it, would be, it would be sort of hard to ascribe all of that to, to one man. OK, so I, perhaps envy isn't going too many places. There are other reasons. Let's look at gluttony. It's the only canonical sin that they don't really seem to have got so much into. I mean, unless you count Liz Truss's infamous rider of a bottle of wine and double espressos and nothing else, but not big brand coffee, whatever that meant. It's terrifying. But can we think of any more examples, apart from being ambushed by cake, which apparently he never actually ate the cake, so he claims it was just a cake that people brought to him because they loved him and you know, they couldn't help themselves. Marie, any spring to mind? Yes, no, I did think of one. Thank you so much for coming to me because I have an incident encyclopedic memory of like really really pointless small political stories <laughs> that do not matter and, and my brain can remember so many useful things and it does not um but instead Roz I can tell do you remember in 2010 when Mark Reckless who was just a young elected that recently elected Tory MP missed a vote in the Commons because he was so drunk that he was on the parliamentary estate but he'd got so pissed he could not make it down to the lobby um <laughs> because I remember that. And think of all the other things I could have in my head if I did not remember that sort of stuff. Um, but yes, no, so I think, I think that falls under gluttony. Mark Reckless, who then uh, joined UKIP, I believe. Um, so, yeah. There is, of course, the, the, the apocryphal story involving Cam Cameron and a, and, a, and a roasted piglet. But that rather falls between the two stalls of gluttony and lust, I feel. <laughs> 
I, I think we have established that that came via Isabel Oakshot, and therefore, yeah, uh, that, that, is, that is entirely apocryphal. And, you know, similarly, anything Michael Gove might or might not have done in his spare time in perhaps a nightclub in Aberdeen is also <laughs> entirely apocryphal. So we're not, we're not going there, guys. We don't want to be sued. Sloth, on the other hand, lots of, lots of examples of sloth. Johnson famously did the absolute minimum in number 10, and he regularly bunked off to Checkers and the Caribbean and invited his friends, uh, even during the pandemic. Uh, there was Cameron's complacency in agreeing to the Brexit referendum in the first place. He just thought he'd ride it out and it would all be okay and he'd get rid of a problem, whatever. And then there was the unforgettable sight of Jacob Rees-Mogg reclining on the benches of the Commons, and not just at any time, but during a really important, a really important debate about No Deal and what would happen as a result of it when he actually closed his eyes and appeared to go to sleep. But finally, finally, what else, what else but lust? Because there's been a lot of lust, just as there was in the dying days of the Tory administration in the mid to late 90s. There was Matt Hancock. I thought you were going to say the dying days of the Roman Empire. <laughs> there's, always, there's always a lot of lust in the dying days. It's just, yeah, it's what happens, isn't it? There was Matt Hancock locked in a passionate embrace with Gina Angelo. <laughs> it was not passionate. It was so many things, but it was not passionate. Like, for, as long, for as long as I... For as long as I live, like, at the back of my head will be that picture of him resting like his hands like this. <laughs> no grabbing, no grabbing whatsoever, just resting his hands like, as if on a mantelpiece. He, he, was, like, he was arranged like a sort of Lego yeah, no, figure, <laughs> wasn't he? <laughs> but it, it, Sorry, was, yeah. it was during the pandemic, Marie, and, you know, we all... <laughs> We'd all forgotten lots of, you know, how to do basic stuff during the pandemic. I think if you're snogging someone, grabbing their ass is the less uh, dangerous activity in terms of catching. But COVID. he, he no, did, no, 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 yeah, the kissing is bad. The, the, the ass grabbing is yeah. fine though. Like if you just, yeah. But he did do it even as he made sex illegal for other people who weren't living together, which is really quite something, you know, to be to to be marvelled at. And then, of course, there was Jennifer Arcuri, the pole dancing entrepreneur, <laughs> who offered to give Boris Johnson technology lessons and ended yeah. up being repaid twice over for her favour. <laughs> we, we invited her on tonight, but she was busy. Um, Alex, what have I ever looked? Have I ever looked any, any even more egregious examples? Chris Pincher. The actual, I mean, it's, a, it's a tiny source of joy that the actual sin that brought down Johnson wasn't even his own. Thank you so much. Um, no, uh, I would say my favourite very minor sex scandal uh, was the Stephen Crabbe sexting thing. I don't know if you guys remember when he ran in 2016... Uh, ran for leader on a proper, like, socially conservative platform of, like, you know, marriage between... I think he, generally, I think he'd said, like, you know, marriage between a man and a woman and stuff like that. And then, yeah, I found that he was sexting this researcher or something. But it's mostly... Obviously married with kids on the side. But it's mostly that the sext read, I want to kiss you everywhere. And that was, I think, on the front page of the Times. And I remember seeing that being like, you can't just give people that. <laughs> just like, you know, we're without warning. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I think a very cringe sexting scandal... I want to kiss you everywhere by Stephen Crabbe. That that did, is mine. Did he mean like in the kitchen? In the... <laughs> <laughs> well, just, like, like, like Cluedo, like horny of, Cluedo. That's kind, of, that's kind of where my mind went. <laughs> like... There was also the MP, the Tory MP, who ended up um, looking at porn sites because he'd been searching for tractors. Oh, the tractor guy. We've all, we've. Oh no. It's... <laughs> I have never, never looked at a tractor online. <laughs> Arthur, I know, I know you live in the countryside now. <laughs> we, we're perhaps overlooking some of the sins of some of our less you know, egregious PMs. Well, what sins was Theresa May guilty of? Dullness, is that one of the seven? No. Dullness? No, the dullness is never, you know, dullness is quite Christian. <laughs> 
then she, hang on, wasn't there that Tory MP who lost the whip for being a massive creep and then she gave him back the whip to win a vote, which I would argue was not entirely holy of her. I'm not sure what sin her, that is. is her, that a... her deputy was the porn guy, the other porn, the, the Damien Green porn guy. Was so... Oh, yes, that's true. Oh, Marie, you, you have is, another one. Believe it or not, it is a minor detail everyone's forgotten about again. And my favourite thing about the Damien Green uh, porn site story was that, because obviously he was alleged to have looked at porn, like, you know, kind of like the, the company computer, um, but they'd found his account, and I think, so it was a, like, pop bitch, the newsletter, which I recommend, by the way, noted that because, yeah, um, noted, I think the details had been leaked, and it was an email that was allegedly his, but obviously he was like, couldn't possibly be mine. But the passwords, I think, the name of his mother-in-law... <laughs> That is a fantastic detail. Here all night. Okay, I I don't think, though, that we can really pin that on Theresa May, too. (laughs) Liz Truss, though, what is her her real cardinal sin? What was Liz Truss's? Was it pride? Was it the ridiculous outfits? Was it cosplay, Thatcher cosplay? What was it that... Who knows? Well, I feel like you've told us we can't get sued, so I feel like I've gone on to that. (laughs) I mean, in the, in the sort of great dramatic arc of the Old Testament, Liz Truss wouldn't even be a footnote. We, we were talking backstage about, I don't know why, I, I was thinking about Liz Truss today. Uh, and I was thinking that the, the rumour was that when the Johnsons moved out of the flat, they basically stripped off even the light fittings. And I just imagine her walking into this empty place. And by the time she was thrown out, she'd be looking at swatches and, like, deciding <laughs> colour schemes. <laughs> and, and it's like, then the decorator walks in and Sunak is there. And so, uh, I, I'm sure, was, is she your wife? I was talking to some other lady just now. <laughs> Bless her. I've become quite fond of Liz Truss. <laughs> I have. Same, literally same. I was thinking, so I'd recommend, there's a really good piece in The Economist from last week uh, where they argue, I mean, it's savage, but they argue that basically what she's doing at the moment is the political equivalent of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We're like, kids with cancer. <laughs> <laughs> gets to, you know, meet celebrities and stuff and like, she gets to go to Taiwan and tell Xi Jinping to shove it. And like, that's the thing. Um, but no, no, same actually. I've, I've become weirdly like, yeah, I'm, I'm a trust fan. You go, yeah, girl. As long as yeah. she's like nowhere near... Any levers of power. She will cause World War Three, like if not this year, next year, or in five years. My like, father would be delighted. Because <laughs> then we'll learn the value of things, you see. I, I love it when they all turn up together like they did at the coronation. You've got them all literally in a line and you can all just watch them. And, and Liz <laughs> Trust so literally fun. like Mrs. O from Victoria Woods. She always seems <laughs> quite shaky, doesn't quite know how to curtsy. I mean, it's just so awkward. She has this weird Barbie doll quality that <laughs> sort of, you feel she's poseable, but not, never quite the right pose. <laughs> Sorry, that was rather bitchy. I will stop now. Um, <laughs> a recalled series of the Barbital. <laughs> Marie, does this, does this era have a saving grace? Is there anything that we will look back and think, well, yeah, it was 13 years of mostly hell, but after all, they did that. So I struggled when I saw that question in the script, I'm going to be honest with you. Because uh, I think that the, the obvious one that came to my mind straight away was uh, equal marriage. But again, I feel like any other government who would have come in would have done it. And if someone else had been in power for those 13 years, I would be ready to you know, put my hand to the fire like they would have introduced that. Uh, no, I mean, and, and this is digging slightly, and I'm, and I'm slightly biased because I, I am self-employed myself. But I will say that actually the you know a, a lot of the you know the covid specifically the pandemic self-employed scheme was actually very good because i know like my so i'm uh, half french uh, half moroccan but anyway so um, my mum is self-employed in france and actually she had a terrible time of it because france was just like of course we can give you 17 pounds please fill in there's like 175 forms uh whereas actually you know for me and i was really terrified because you know my career busy stopped when the lockdown started um and that that really helped so so I, yeah um i will say weirdly rishi sunak well done on that. Is 
gone downhill somewhat uh, from there, I would say. But uh, but yeah, but no, no, I, I couldn't think of much really. Is is you know probably indicative of. Uh, Maybe a wider problem, I don't know what, but uh, yeah. But, but they're all reactive, aren't they? I mean, if you think, if you think they've, they've been in power as long as Blair and Brown, they've been in power as, uh, longer than Thatcher. Um, in, if, you, if you think, what's their legacy? It, it's really weird. They're all negative things. I mean, if you were being very generous, you would say they coped very well with X that was thrown at them. But they, they didn't build anything. They didn't have any vision for anything. They didn't change anything. They didn't seem to have a plan for the entire 13 years, which is really quite extraordinary because if you, if you, I mean, if you plop me in there, by year two, I would think I'd have some fucking idea about what to do, <laughs> right? Even if I didn't at the start. Aren't you forgetting the garden bridge? Yes, I am forgetting the Garden Bridge because it never fucking happened. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm also forgetting the HS2, which has never fucking happened either. Yeah. I was thinking about this a bit because there is that vibe of of thinking back to the the last time the Tories were probably on their way out. And at that time, some of you may recall this, back in 97, you're trying to think about what what is the lasting legacy of the John Major era. And, of course, it's the Cones hotline. Some of you (laughs) older people here might remember the Cones hotline. It was a very important public service where you could ring up to find if there were cones on a motorway. I mean, even as I say it, I can't, can hardly imagine. And, um, and in fact, it was, that was a big gig when I was a student. In the holidays, if you need to work, you could work as a person on the end of the cones hotline. On the cones hotline? And, and, you worked on the cones hotline? Um, I wish I could say that. A good friend of mine did. And this was in the sort of pre-automation era. You were given a big folder full of information about where the cones were. <laughs> And you you had to stay at home and the phone would ring and an irate motorist would say, why are there cones? I mean, how fantastic, though, if you're someone that has a fetish for cones or collects cones, you know, just bring up and give your postcode and be told where your nearest cones are. I'm saying if. It's undeniably it's a, a useful, a useful is it, is service. Maybe like a, a friend from school or something. Yeah, it is maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah, we don't. He we doesn't don't, have a name. You don't know him. Yeah. We don't have cones anymore, do we? We have smart motorways, and those have also also failed. Yeah. <laughs> they ended up killing. They were smart in that scary yeah. AI way that yeah. kills people. <laughs> too too smart for us. Yeah. We're going to move on to a very short section before the break, because I know that everyone will be keen to go and buy some more merch. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to talk about the cost of living crisis, because it might seem overwhelming, but luckily some Tory MPs can help. And Widdicombe thinks people should have cheese sandwiches, but without the cheese. Perhaps also known as bread. The Bassett Law MP, Brendan Clark-Smith, advises people to give up Heinz and buy own brand baked beans. Shut up. What, you don't like home brand baked beans? No, but (laughs) that's amazing. This will change everything. I know, this is a life hack. Do you think it's... (laughs) Like, people, people who can't afford their shop can buy cheaper... Own brand. I mean, fucking hell. He probably noticed. He probably noticed that Aldi had opened round the corner and thought, "Oh, that might tell you something." Yeah. So we're asking our panel to give hints and tips on how to save money in a kind of good housekeeping vibe. Um, I'm actually in the very beginning of my career. I had a very small column in Good Housekeeping, which lasted precisely two months. Anyway. Uh, well, we're looking at the thought that Anne Whittacombe would approve of. And so it's a little item called Some Modest Proposals. And we've already given you plenty of suggestions over the years. And, oh, God, what now for how to save money? I mean, for example, don't use expensive pasta in your lasagne. <laughs> use crisps. <laughs> <laughs> and there was corgi kebabs, which I remember recommending to everyone shortly. Yeah, anyway, perhaps I shouldn't talk about corgi kebabs. But what else is there? Arthur, have you got a suggestion? Well, um, I, I struggled to come up with my own, but I, there is so much wisdom in 
Tory MPs that I, I really felt we should draw deep on that. So back in the, it's weird we keep going back to uh, the, the 90s, but back in the, well, I think this is the 80s, actually, the poll tax. Um, and so, some, some of you, some very old people might remember the poll tax. And there's obviously a fear that it was unaffordable because it was the same level for everyone. But Nicholas Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, who um, uh, long since dead, but was the MP uh, for Sirencester, which is not, not far from where I live, um, he, he came up with a brilliant idea, which is still relevant today, which said you could sell a painting. Because obviously everybody, <laughs> everybody, not, kind of, not, not one of the big ones, right? So obviously you're, you're going to have like the, the Van Dyke above the no. fireplace. No, don't sell that. But West Wing, there'll be a little watercolour, that sort That's of stuff. Brilliant. So, so, um, that is brilliant. You know, I mean, when you get home tonight, take a look. Um, <laughs> And so the, the other one, which, which also comes from the, the same, same sort of stable, is you'll notice that um, fine wines are getting very expensive now. Um, and, and particularly if you want to drink a, you know, a 25-year-old wine, it's very expensive. But if you've got a massive ancestral cellar and you, you buy the wine when they release it, it's a lot cheaper. And then you keep it there for about a quarter of a century and then it's ready. So, so those are two, two tips I encourage you all to take up. He has set the bar way too high. I am not going to be that funny. Uh, no, well, I mean, I, I did not go looking. No, I thought, you know what, actually, if you, uh, if you want to have a roast chicken, but obviously at the moment no one can afford chicken, uh, just chase and eat a pigeon. And I think, so, no, no, nice or like roast pigeon, which also, I'm saying, free exercise. Not that, you know, no one owns a bow and arrow, so you're just going to have to, like, jump and, you know, kind of, like, catch the pigeon, which, again, free exercise... And also a free meal at the end of it. So I think that's, you know, maybe some crisps around as well, you know, obviously in the dish. No, that's, yeah, my, my French advice to you. More after the break. <laughs> we'll be back in 15 minutes. Don't miss the special Podmasters clearance sale in the foyer. Uh, lots of classic merchandise and mugs for five quid each. If you lay those down for 25 years, you have no idea how much <laughs> they, might, they might be worth. In what would that be? 2048. Oh, my God. Everything must go, and so must we. See you in 15 minutes. Thank you. 